tortilla rituals. The motherly tone of a Tijuana Uber driver. The smile on my buddy's face as he relates last night's first kiss. The reluctance of a Zona Norte street dog to accept a warm tortilla and how we bent down on our knees to put her at ease. The sinkholes in the sidewalk. The blind man at the bar. The frenetic sunrise of six in the morning bar tropics and how we drank until we hated beer before lurching to the edge of La Zona to collapse in bed. All of this breaks my heart and makes me whole. This is Say Something Anything, poetry podcast brought to you by Fina Press, which is an independent poetry and art and music press based in San Diego, California. And we're at what I would consider actually now a regular recording spot for the podcast, because I think I've done like five here at Krakatoa. Regular enough that I can finally feel confident saying the name of it. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast, Chad. You made it all the way up here from Tijuana, where you live. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. And the uh, question we always start with is, how do you take your coffee? I, uh, I gave up coffee a while ago because it gives me anxiety. Really? But I took it up again because I was not being very productive. That is like a catch-22. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I actually water it down, to answer your question. With actual water? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, uh, in Tijuana, they call it cafe... Americano when you add water to it. Really? <laughs> Weirdly enough, yeah. And uh, I guess I'm an American now. That's so interesting. I never heard of that before. Mm-hmm. And I'm surprised that that's actually a thing. Yeah, usually it's hot water, but I just put cold water because, um, well, because it's easier. So you're a man of simplicity. All right. I dig it. That's cool. Um, all right. So you gave me, you sent me like a bit of your history, mm-hmm. your story, but... The first thing that I want to touch on before I knew that was just I read your work from uh, this project that you're working on, Tortilla Rituals, and I thought it was really cool. I think you're, like, the biggest, I don't want to say stretch, but, like, the most different style of people that we've had on the podcast Mm. Um, because it was sort of this hybrid of prose and lyrical stuff and ranty in a really cool way almost like Kerouac-y um do you consider yourself to be a poet uh at one time I did I went to I went to college and I was very into poetry when I studied uh creative writing at Humboldt State I wanted to pursue poetry but I also was very interested in kind of dissociative like word puddles is what I call them just these blobs of words that are I guess kind of William Burroughsy. I mean you're very perceptive to see like this beat influence on that yeah. and uh, uh, kind of almost like a dream sequence you know yeah. where it's yeah. dissociative but it gives you this like lingering feeling you yeah. know and uh, Tortilla Rituals is not that type of, of writing as much as just straight ahead prose and poetry mm-hmm. but uh, that's something I'm reconnecting with recently yeah. yeah yeah and I mean I dig it I think it's a really cool style and mm-hmm. I think it's interesting. It's such a creative form of writing. Mm. They'll still be critical of labeling whether something is poetry or not. 
Um, and then you're also in uh, the plane flying. <laughs> you're also, you play music, and you've been in a few bands, and you're in some bands now, which is a different, a whole different kind of creative outlet. Sure. And then you do freelance, uh, more straight-up journalism style. Mm-hmm. So what do you see as, or do you see a connection between the music and the creative writing, the creative writing and the journalism, um, or to you, are they just all completely separate? Mm, I couldn't say they're all separate because they're all kind of attempting to do the same thing in a way. The journalism side is, is, well, how I pay my rent and all this and buy pickles, you know, but like... which isn't necessary. Which is necessary, but uh, the poetry and, and writing side is more what happens when it hits, you know, like, like I, I can't force it, it just has to come when it comes, you know, like with anybody. And uh, the music side is definitely similar to that, it's almost abridging the two where it's like, well, you need to put a bass line on this song, but you also feel it out in, the, in between, so maybe the music kind of bridges this, those two the obligation of writing or the obligation of creating with the, the freedom to create too. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting way to put it. Mm. The journalism is very structured form of writing. Mm. Poetry is the most free-flowing you can get and music is sort of at a midway point where it's super creative but at the same time you have to be able to structure it in a particular way to make a song. That's right. Okay, so now going I guess back to the, your like background history. You started studying psychology and mycology. Is that what the other thing is Yeah. St- I had to look that up. The study of study mushrooms. mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> I was really interested yeah. in mushrooms. Um, but all the classes were very, very early in the morning. And I think I enjoyed college too much. And, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, if you're taking mushrooms, it's probably hard to study mushrooms early in the morning. <laughs> and they go hand in hand. Um, I realized I'm not a scientifically minded person as much as I thought I was. Uh-huh. Um, I'm happy to read about it when someone else does all the work, but um, I don't care for empiricism that much. So so I I moved to a creative writing major, and all those classes were like at 7 p.m., and you could drink a few PBRs on the campus. Dude, I studied creative writing, too. I don't think there's like a more liberal, laid-back major that you can take. Oh, it's Um, so chill. or, Or a better major for a career path. Yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of unwittingly, it it, it, um, it sprouted into uh, journalism and all these other things. You That's, know? That is the tendency. Mm-hmm. Um, but your journalism, or um, you mentioned somebody that I really dug. Tom Wolf, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's sort of this mixture between standard journalism, but with a literary element to it. Totally. Like, as far as I can tell, like Tom Wolf was this kind of total square in a sense but he was this vicariously I mean he wrote Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test he wrote the the book I was reading at the time uh, when I when I broke into the reader with the blog contest was uh, it was about a bunch of surfer kids up by um, Bird Rock here in San Diego actually and it was a collection of like short essays by Tom Wolfe and I just I loved his style just it was very breezy and like in the people's heads in a sense yeah um and it was something that i haven't seen many people do before so i i tried to mimic that style when i went i moved back here in 2009 from traveling and from college and so forth and um 
went to a party at my neighbor's house in Hamul, and there were just a bunch of decadent, you know, like crazy bros out in Hamul, like with lifted F-150 trucks, but they're like veggie fuel converted, you know? <laughs> it was this bizarre dichotomy of like pure broness, like punch you in the face, listening to Eminem, but also like preparing for the apocalypse with like alternative fuel sources kind of guys. Right. And I, I fell in love with that. I was blown away. So I wrote um, a blog for the reader blog contest. Um, Adam Greenfield on Puna Press. I yeah. was working with him at the time in the right. kitchen at a, a pizza shop in Hillcrest. And all of us were, were shooting for the reader, the reader money because it was really good money. They yeah. were paying 500 for first place. And it was like, that was so much better than what we were getting paid. So all of us wanted it. We had like a reading, a reading group. Um, 12 of us would get together at Ian Pike's house. He's now a, a reader contributor as well. Um, and just kind of toss around stories and see what we can do, you know? And yeah. uh, everyone just wanted to get out of that fucking kitchen <laughs> and, uh, and write, you know? Yeah. And yeah. all of us eventually did, you know, in one way or another. I know, that's yeah. crazy. And that's, some, I'll, I, that's something I want to talk about too, but we get to that after because mm. I want to stick with this for a minute. Sure. Because you won... You came in second for the blog contest, mm-hmm. um, and then that's how you kind of kicked off your your consistent freelance for them. What started with this blog, right? Yeah, yeah. It uh, it got second place, which was a, a good chunk of change compared to the pizza shop. And the editor hit me up, and he's like, "Well, what else do you got? You know, I like your style." And I was like, yeah. "Man, I've always wanted to hang out with the Minutemen out in Campo." And so, you know, the libertarian dudes that guard the border out of a sense of patriotism or what have you to stop people from crossing the border it doesn't align with my politics necessarily but i was just interested in kind of demystifying who these people are because people have very volatile reactions to these people you know either they're super for them or super against them or they maybe never heard of them wait so you just pitched that as like a cold kind of idea Mm -hmm. you had nothing you hadn't spoken to them before no i had nothing and we we went on a kind of a desert like looking for obi-wan kenobi kind of quest Uh you know into the desert and found this guy named Kingfish who's had an eye patch he lost his eye in I think the Vietnam War and got dispatched early and he felt like his term of service wasn't over yet so he he felt like being on the border watching the border with a pistol on his hip was like his way of kind of fulfilling his duty to his country right. that, that was that's where his sentiments lied and that so what was that like your first feature your first story for them after that was the first cover and then I just sort of um, pushed from there to try to get into other uh, the Party Crasher column became available. Yeah. Um, we made a bar review column called Here's the Deal. And, uh, yeah, I checked that out. All this cool. stuff. Yeah. So I just kept pushing because I really, really wanted to just write and not be in a kitchen ever again. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> so how long were you writing freelance before you were able to leave the, the pizza joint? Incidentally, I got fired like exactly when the reader picked me up. Wow. What did you get fired for? Um, not sucking up to my boss enough. There was like a mass exodus where all the managers left like a month later and they wrote a, a very lengthy note. Uh. A compassionate <laughs> note, but also like very critical. And, you know, the guy had his own problems, you know. And, and um, so, yeah, I, I stopped being a sycophant and he, he was irritated by that. So, yeah. as, it, as it goes. Yeah, as it goes. <laughs> um... Okay, yeah, so freelancing for the reader, and then you moved to Tijuana two years ago, you said? Yeah, yeah, I moved there in order to follow more stories. I would, what really, like, opened my eyes to TJ was 
All My Friends Music Festival in 2011, I believe. Um, I saw so much great music there and rad art and cool people, and it blew my mind. Like, it started a year earlier as a house party, and then moved to this rented cheesy mansion. Wait, what's the festival you're talking about? It's called All My Friends okay. is the name. Now it's held in Rosarito on the beach. All right. And, um, it's, it's blown up huge, you know. Um, La Femme from, I think, France played you know, headline last year. And, right on. Um, I think they're in their sixth or seventh year now. The, yeah. The guy that started it is my next-door neighbor now, incidentally. And um, But I moved down there to to follow more stories about food, art, music, um, border issues, just any, anything about Tijuana, like, you know, because there's been so much bizarre press. Which is, has been warranted, you know, but I think people cling to this idea mm-hmm. of Tijuana that is not necessarily true any longer. Yeah. And uh, I was interested in just trying to find out what was actually going on. And I also wanted, I just wanted to practice my Spanish more. So are you good at Spanish now? I'm somewhat good at bar Spanish, yeah. What is bar Spanish? Mostly a lot of cursing. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what's important if you're at a bar in Tijuana. It helps. <laughs> All right. So going back again, I know we're jumping around a lot with the timeline here. Sure. But um, you spent time in Costa Rica after college. Yeah, I went there to to get a TEFL degree, which is teaching English as a foreign language. And um, it seemed like a natural extension of the English degree. So it was a month-long program. Then I bought a bike, uh, like a cheap mountain bike, in the small town I was studying in and headed south with a backpack and swim trunks and sandals and a hammock and just surfed along the way and yeah. and ate a lot of shrimp and ended up in Panama and then Colombia, incidentally, um, and ended up in Medellin, Colombia, for about three months, sort of te- teaching English a little bit, like, here and there. Yeah. But mostly just cruising around, trying to get a feel for the place, you know? Right. So how long did it take you to get from... Costa Rica to Colombia on a mountain bike. Well, all right. How long did that take? Well, I made it to David, Panama, which is in the northern part of Panama, or I guess you could say the the western part, because Panama sort of wiggles from west to to east. Okay. Um. And then I caught a ride with some people from Couchsurfing.com to Panama City. South of Panama City is the Darien Gap, which is, like, this unpassable... Like, the Pan-American Highway does not connect there. Like, it's this impassable region, you know? Um, So I took a plane, I think it was, like, 50 bucks to get to Cartagena. And uh, so I left my bike with a hostel, um, who I'd made friends with up in Panama, and um, eventually traded the bike for a hefty beer tab. Um, when I came back, they were very kind to me. What's up, Mike? If you ever hear this, you're awesome. Um, Mike, what up? Mike Esterson, <laughs> Bamboo Hostel in David. Uh, uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, so I, I took a plane down there, and then to keep it relevant, I was writing a lot at that time. I was super lonely. Like, I didn't speak much Spanish. So writing was a way to feel connected with the outside world. You know, I was writing to... The only people I knew who were actually reading, which was mostly my parents and, like, <laughs> one of my dad's friends and a few other people. So I was, I was kind of, like, writing to them. And that's when I really started to develop a, a kind of a knack for, in hindsight, a knack for kind of the nonfiction narrative kind of thing, you know? Right, like, right. That's when it really began, began to sink in on a very, like, visceral way, you know? Yeah. You were writing this blog to connect to the outside world. Mm-hmm. So was that, like, more for yourself or 
more for the people that were reading it. Mm, you know, I occasionally enjoy solitude, but in general, I'm a, a social creature, you know, yeah. and so I, I definitely welcome company when when it's if, if it's good company. Yeah. And I, I did meet a lot of really rad people along the way. Yeah. Um, but writing for me was a way of keeping myself sane. Like when I was biking through the middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah. And I had no idea where I was going to end up or where my hammock was going to be pitched that night. Just to like create a narrative in, in my head as uh, along the way and knowing how I was going to write that day's story. So I think it was, it was... I did it for me and I also did it for anyone who was reading to know that I was still alive, you know. Because, <laughs> you know, it served that function as well. Yeah. It is good. At, like when you were doing this writing were you trying to just document your journey or did you also have like in your mind I want to make this into something at the time I didn't really consider it ever becoming anything it was it was mostly therapeutic mm-hmm. uh, looking back on it maybe if I, I tied up some loose ends it could be you know a cohesive short book or something well because I know you said that after this whole traveling and the whole experience, mm-hmm. you had just a plethora of different things that you had written, mm-hmm. and um, and then you felt really fueled to push ahead with it. That's right. So yeah. I, I guess I was just wondering if that was intentional, and you're like, I'm going to spend this time and write all this with the hopes that um, it'll inspire me to put it in something cohesive, or if that just happened organically. Well, I would write along the way, you know, find internet cafes every day or two and, mm-hmm. and spend time just trying to make sense of what had happened and document it the best I could. And that kind of segued into journalism in a sense because the first person narrative experience, it, it was almost gonzo or something at the time, as cliche as that is, you know. It, um, I mean, I can't deny I have a Ralph Steadman tattoo right here from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Got it when I was 17, I think, at, <laughs> in college, you know. But uh, I uh, did your friend do that for you? A hobo named George did it for me. He was he was uh, following the string cheese incident around the country, <laughs> <laughs> and he had a tattoo gun. I was like, yeah, let's do this, dude. I just did. Uh, but uh, no, I, I never I never thought it'd be like a, a cohesive whole. You know, it was just, it was just a way of for me to. to kind of makes sense of what I was doing and also to document it so I wouldn't forget I mean a lot of writing I've ever done is just like just to remember totally really precious moments you know like, yeah. like uh, most of my writing is very personal and very like almost overtly kind of like sentimental at times you know and I thought about being ashamed about that but it, I decided I don't give a fuck so mm-hmm. that's just how I write you know yeah and it's good and I can totally relate to that because you'll be in a moment somewhere and it'll feel, you know, so deep that you are so sure you'll remember everything about it. And then, you know, it could be the next day that you lose sight of that emotion. So mm-hmm. keeping track of it and just reading, you know, a sentence will bring you right back to that place. That's right. And yeah. that's super important for writers. Absolutely. So you're working at the pizza place. So this whole trip happened mm-hmm. before you came back here and worked at the pizza place. And mm-hmm. that's why I've been jumping around the timeline. True. So, yeah, so you know Adam Greenfield, who is with Puna Press, mm-hmm. we're tight. Um, cool. Was it? Because I know you said, like, everyone who was there was writers, and I thought that was kind of a, a coincidence, or did you guys know each other beforehand? No, none of us knew each other. It was actually really bizarre that all of us were in this kitchen, just, like, kind of enjoying sort of, like, the hustle of kitchen work, but also, for me, it was a job, you know, like, yeah. and it was stressful. And right. I've worked pizza for like eight years of my life. Like I've done, I know how to make pizza, and it just—it's yeah. a pain in the ass. How you know? high up can you throw the dough? 
Um, I've actually never tossed the dough. I'm always in the, the back of the house. You've you worked know. pizza eight years and you've never tossed the dough? No, I've massaged probably like 500 pounds of dough, but I've never actually tossed it. Okay. Yeah. So weird coincidence that a bunch of writers work in this pizza place. Yeah, and if it wasn't for those guys, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have pushed for the reader thing. So it was actually a very good... Um, Kismet almost. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's one other thing that I wanted to mention. Because you won an award from Mensa for a story that you wrote about almost losing your genitals at Burning Man. Yeah. That's really interesting. So I went on the Burning Man podcast last night, actually, and told this story. And so I'm trying not to be too redundant, but... Um, it's okay. Um, I didn't hear it. I went to Burning Man in 2006 for the first time. My girlfriend at the time. Uh, we dropped some great acid and went running around and... Eventually, we're making love in this tent full of, like, inflatable kiddie pools with a bunch of pillows in them. Naturally. And, um... Anyways, I, I tore an opener panties hose, and... <laughs> I don't think I should tell this story. Tell it, ma'am. It's so grotesque. Um, Our podcast is called Say Something Anything. All right, all right. Um, like, right at the end of the week... That was, like, the first night there, and at the end of the week... I, I take a look at my junk, and there's this, like, slice from her pantyhose, like, from the friction of the pantyhose. And it's, like, infected. It's, like, green. It's, like, this cut. It's, like, infected and oozing green. It was totally, I'm, like, I was horrified. Yeah. So I went to the medical tent, uh, trailer, and uh, the guy's like, well, you should go to Reno and get, like, some antibiotic, like, injections or something because it's rare. But if you get a cellulitis infection, there's a possibility they're going to have to amputate it. Holy shit. So I was like, oh, shit, man. Like, the man burns tomorrow, and which is the whole point of the whole damn thing, in a yeah. sense. So I kind of have to weigh, which is more important. Yeah, yeah. And I went into the thing, like, not knowing what the man even represented, really. Yeah, I mean, it's a very subjective experience for everybody. What does the man represent? Well, on that I've occasion... Burning, on that occasion, it represented my manhood up there, <laughs> loaded up with explosives and so about, about to burn down in a, you know, pathetic fury of, of flame and... Um, so I made peace with it. I was like, you know what? If I lose my dick, like, whatever, life goes on. Like, I can't you made peace with that. <laughs> yeah. And so as it turns out, like, it was not a big deal. Like, they gave me temp- topical antibiotics and some Band-Aids, and everything was fine, you know. But uh, I turned that into a, a creative nonfiction story. And that was the first time I ever, like, was introduced to creative nonfiction by uh, Corey Lewis at Humboldt State University. Great professor. And that really opened my eyes to, like, how you can, like play with a narrative you know it's still true but you can kind of like pepper it and season it with whatever you know ideas that you have running around and yeah and that, t- that ties into the whole tom wolf thing too i think a bit where yeah you're telling something real but it doesn't have to be dry you know you can add that literary yeah there's it. this kind of poetic license in there mm-hmm. to an extent you know you still want it to be true but you can still subjectively play with it, as yeah. every good writer ever has. You totally. Know? Yeah. Right on. And so, anyways, yeah, I got an award from Mensa, the, the Smart People <laughs> Society, like where you put together a puzzle in under a minute or whatever. But no, you know, because no, I know what Mensa is. You're right. And I heard the, the topic of your story, which was almost losing your genitals at Burning Man, and I just had never... <laughs> well, that's a funny combination. Well, that's what I thought. Yeah, I was like, it's like this endlessly hilarious, like, why would they choose that story, you know? Yeah. But, you know, I... T- it must have been genius. Yeah, there's a lot of implications of that, but I... I, <laughs> I thought it was cool. I mean, whatever, they give me a hundred bucks and... Uh, yeah, and you can, like, brag people that... Mensa endorses my, my genitals. Yeah. yeah, I think that should be the takeaway. Put that on my headstone. <laughs> 
Is there anything that I haven't asked that you would want to talk about? I did want to mention something about tortilla rituals because it's kind of this idea I've been tossing around. I suppose it was about a month ago. I, I was involved in some some sticky situations involving some ladies I was involved with with ex-boyfriends. I didn't realize these girls had jealous ex-boyfriends or whatever. And so I, I was I was genu- genuinely concerned for their safety. So I went to my neighbor, La Bruja. Well, I call her the witch, you know, but she's a good witch. I met her so this is in Tijuana. In Tijuana, yeah. And I, I met her in the cemetery. And she's like a great wellspring of advice for me. And she's always there. And like, I asked her what to do about this. And she's like, well, you need to, you need to purify your energy. And the way you do that is to, <laughs> to make your own tortillas out of masa, out of masa, uh, out of masa dough, which is just like making a pizza, as it turns out. Um, and then as they're still warm, chop them up into the little pieces, go out into the streets and find a street dog and feed it to a street dog. But if the dog is smiling, don't give it to him. It has to be a frowning street dog. And the dog will eat this the... Is, sorry. Yeah. This is the advice that she gave you in regards to these girls with the crazy ex-boyfriends. That's right. The, the, this is uh, the rituals that she advised me to do, and I okay. did them. Um, and I actually went back towards the graveyard where I orig- originally met her um, in Castillo, uh, part of Tijuana, and... These two dogs came out of nowhere, and both of them were frowning pretty hardcore. And, uh, so you fed them that shit? Yeah, and one of them ate it really greedily, and the other one was, like, very wary. So I kind of, like, set it down and let him figure it out on his own or on her own. And uh, But in the larger scheme, I think tortilla rituals and all the, what unifies all of these writings, they're all about Tijuana and mostly Zona Norte because I, re- I live right on the edge of the scuzziest, uh, one of the scuzzier parts of TJ. It's like the red light district, you know, like right between a family park and like the hooker district, you know. Okay. So it's straddling this this liminal line between these two places, and all of these poems take place there. But it's it's just a very bizarre place, and uh, tortilla rituals in, in, in a larger sense is about kind of honoring every beautiful moment I've ever had, and every romance, and every failed romance, and every you know fuck up I've ever had, you know. And it's a way of saying sorry and a way of saying thank you. And it's just like this... The theme is sort of a celebration of all the spontaneous rad moments that make life awesome, you know? That's kind of what ties it all together. It's all personal experience, like, this along the same lines of that uh, creative nonfiction totally. sort of thing. Yeah, I don't know. Is that... I'm just... This is coming to me now. I'm just wondering, like, if all of this stemmed from that initial pitch that you gave to the reader so long ago about the border. I've been interested in the border ever since I moved back here. There's so many misconceptions and stories about borderland, San Diego, Tijuana, that I just wanted to dive in head first and really see, like, just see what it was all about and, like, and then kind of, like, shout back from the other side and tell people, like, hey, this is how it is. Like, it is grimy, it is weird, it is fucked up still. But it, there's also this there's beauty, also like, stuff. beneath all the crime, beneath all the shit, like, yeah. there is something, the common soul of humanity exists, you know, some right. sort of divinity maybe even exists there, as it does everywhere, you know? Totally. And it's, it's just less apparent. More multidimensional than people would think. That's right. Absolutely multidimensional is, is a great word for it. Very cool. Yeah. That's really awesome. And it's a continuing project, you're still constantly working on it? Yeah, yeah, like I say, like, when it comes, it comes, you know, like, I try not to force it, you know, but 
usually happens at the bar. I mean, my outro poem is going to be called, it's called A Napkin at Tropics, where sitting there drinking beer at Tropics, and it's like, shit, I got to write this down, because yeah. it just, like, punches you in the gut, and you're like, I got to get this out, you know? got to do it very and you, much. You, you, you can't plan for it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. your point, you know, you know how this, this yeah. goes. You know? But after that, after the initial, like, getting it out, do mm. you do you ever go back and edit, or you kind of, I want to, because I know there's distinct thoughts on this, and some people are just like, this is how I felt at the time, mm. and editing it all will be altering how I felt, and there's some people who want to go back and clean it up and make it seem prettier or whatever. Sure. I mean, yeah, I'm constantly editing. You can see I crossed out a line on the first poem I read, like, just because the rhythm was better. So there's an initial outpour of whatever it is, and then you can kind of tidy it up later. That's, that's, how I, that's how I approach it, for sure. I think that that's the way to do it. I think I last probably too many questions i'm always meant to keep these short and then i never do i'm really <laughs> curious about people that i'm talking to and then i want to just know everything for selfish reasons well, i appreciate your interest yeah so before you close this out with the uh, two poems that you're gonna close out with mm-hmm. uh anything else that you want to mention if you want to talk about the bands that you're in and the music that you do um we can link to those so feel free to say their names and what they're all about sure um I think we're going to tack on a, a track from a band I've been involved with recently called Gravy Yard, um, spelled like turkey and gravy plus yard. Um, fucking stupid name, but... Um, nah, I like the name. Yeah, I like it too. It looks good written down. Um, <laughs> he needed the confirmation for me to say, thank like, you. no, no, yeah. it's good. It's yeah, good. Yeah, I, I did. I, did. <laughs> I was like, no, that is fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, whatever, that's the name. And... Uh, yeah, this song's called Heirloom, written by my buddy Joe Mousy, who's the guitarist and singer. I play the bass, and my buddy Dan Brozo is on the keyboards. And, uh, well, to keep it short, we ordered a, a liter of ether off the internet and huffed it for a week straight, you know, in, uh, in honor of Hunter S. Thompson, more or less, and wrote all these graveyard cemetery folk tunes that are meant to inspire a sense of the ethereal. And, uh, yeah. So you'll, you'll hear that at the end. That, dude. Yeah. Rightfully so. Yeah. And trust me, either is not worth it. That shit sucks. Um, <laughs> gives you a headache and makes you feel funny. But whatever. you got to try everything once. Sure. All right. So Graveyard and then other bands that you want to talk about? Yeah. We don't really have anything online so much. But Donkey Chow, D-O-N-K-I-C-H-O-W is my band. And TJ with my roommate, um, Mateo. And it's kind of more of a math rock band. All he wrote all those songs, and they're very uh, kind of classical meets punk meets math compositions. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun shit. Yeah, we, we played with uh, with Ted Washington's band a few weeks ago. That was a blast over at uh, the Kensington Club. And I want to give a shout out to Sonny Ray for being a rad human being and for linking me up with you <laughs> and being a beautiful poet. Um, yeah, much love to, to Sonny Ray for sure. Always. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again so much, Chad. And now uh, he's going to close us out with two more Tijuana ritual poems. So here we go. Okay. A napkin at Tropics. I thought you were crazy when we danced Mad Cumbia at Barnelson. But when you placed 20 pesos by the mangy head of La Maguana, sleeping on cardboard on the sidewalks of La Zona, and she woke up, terrified for her life and you calmly stroked her cheek softened your eyes and shooshed her back to sleep 
you both became angelic, if only for a moment. And this last one's called Me Valle Verga. Again at Bar Nelson, I meet a man who fabricates astro jumps by hand. His father passed the trade on to him, and he is passing it down to his son, who is also named Beto. Si, conache. Beto got jumped twice in the F.A. And on the third round, he knocked out all three of his assailants with a Martin bass guitar. Many drinks later, he asked me the best way to translate me vale verga. And we spend the next ten minutes relaying the phrase, I don't give a shit, it's dick to me. I don't give a shit, it's dick to me. Louder with every sip of La Especial. It's a shoddy translation, but something vast is communicated beneath the hodgepodge vulgarities. And when I later bike home and make small talk with the two beautiful trannies and burnt-out gringos of Zona Norte, I know all is right in this weird little world. again, Chad Deal. I'm Kara Goldfarb, and this is Say Something Anything. If you are a poet or know a poet who should be on the podcast, email me at kara at punapress.com. Thank you so much, and we will speak to you soon. Yeah.